Hello listeners and welcome to the third season of Pebble in the Pond, a podcast that hopes to create a ripple of change for mental health. My name is Sam Stewart and I am the CEO of the Australian and New Zealand Mental Health Association. Each year our association hosts several leading mental health conferences that allow us the chance to meet and connect with the most fascinating and accomplished people in mental health. Listen in as we go one-on-one with the people changing the face of mental health in Australia and New Zealand. From lived experience speakers through to researchers, academics, leading community organisations and influential industry leaders. Our Pebble in the Pond podcast episodes may contain themes or topics of discussion that may be triggering for some listeners. If you feel you need assistance with your mental health at any time, please contact Lifeline on 13 11 14 or visit the Get Help page for additional resources at anzmh.asn.au. Despite the best efforts of governments over the years, providing timely, appropriate and equitable access to services supporting child mental health has been problematic. Both parents and professionals have difficulty navigating a fragmented service system and there are long waiting lists for assessment and treatment. At the same time, there is increasing recognition of the importance of considered investment in child mental health, given the opportunities for prevention and early intervention before problems become more challenging to manage. To combat this, the National Children's Mental Health and Wellbeing Strategy was developed. This provides a framework to guide critical investment in the mental health and well-being of children and families. And one man dedicated to driving this strategy is today's guest, Professor Frank Oberclade. Frank is an internationally recognized researcher, author, lecturer, and consultant, and has written two books and over 200 scientific publications on various aspects of children's health and development. He is co-group leader of Child Health Policy, Equity and Translation, at the Murdoch Children's Research Institute and a professor of paediatrics at the University of Melbourne. Frank has long-standing clinical research and policy interests in children's health. He is chair of the Victorian Children's Council, which provides expert advice to the Victorian government on children's health, and he's also co-chair of the National Children's Mental Health and Wellbeing Strategy. Continue listening as Frank delves into the perceived strengths and weaknesses of the current system along with advice as to how to improve it. Professor Frank Oberclade, thanks very much for joining us on today's episode. Most welcome. Frank, do you mind telling us a bit of background? Tell us about how, I know that you've got a lot of experience and I want to just, if you go back to the start of where, when and where you first trained up and what got you into it in the first place? Well, it's a long story. Uh, It goes back quite a few years when I was training to be a paediatrician at the Royal Children's Hospital in Melbourne. And I did a term of psychiatry and I was quite attracted to it. Didn't end up doing it for two reasons. There were no great role models for me that I thought I could emulate. And secondly, I didn't want to be the court of last appeal for all the really challenging kids and their families. Uh, So I was lucky enough, and I knew I wanted to spend some time overseas, so I was lucky enough to get a fellowship at Harvard in Boston. Wow. At a time when this whole field of developmental behavioural paediatrics and so on was just getting underway. And in fact, I was part of a group that uh, were lucky enough to see, to work with and become friends with the people that began it. So the specialty of behavioural paediatrics really started in the late 1970s, I suppose, when a paediatrician called Stan Friedman originated the Society for Behavioural Paediatrics. 
Was he based in the US? He was based in the US. And uh, that was sort of unusual too, a paediatrician getting involved in this. And I remember the early days, the early meetings, 20, 30, 40 people would roll up. Then the society grew. They started a journal and it became more and more part of paediatric training. And paediatrics, the practice of paediatrics has really changed a lot over the years. So one of the guys that Stan Friedman worked with, one of his mentors, was a a guy called Bob Haggerty. Robert Haggerty and he was one of the reasons I ended up in Boston because I wasn't sure what I wanted to do as a specialty. I wanted to do something I thought academically. I wanted to work with families. I wanted to work with a community but I couldn't articulate what it was and then Bob Haggerty came to Melbourne as a visiting professor and we're just articulating all these things that I couldn't find words for and I spent a long time, many times talking to him and told him I'd applied for a job in Boston, hadn't yet heard And in retrospect, that was like a job interview because a few days after he left Melbourne and I got a phone call from Boston offering me a position. So I was really very, very fortunate. Wow. So Stan Friedman worked for Bob and had this vision that paediatrics was changing. Bob Haggerty had introduced a term called the new morbidity in paediatrics in which he argued that the environment in which a child grew up was a major determinant of his or her outcome. And also said that and documented the paediatrics was changing with infectious disease really conquered by immunisation, more and more children with developmental and behavioural and psychosocial problems were turning up paediatric practices. This is in the States. And for a large part, paediatricians weren't trained to address them because we were trained in the organic model, you know, make a diagnosis, write a prescription, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. So after four and a half years in Boston, I came back to set up a department at the Children's Hospital in Melbourne. This was late through. 70s by the... No. Came back at the end of 1980. Okay, end of the 80s, yeah. okay. And this is very young in, in the Australian context of this stuff happening. Very young. Pioneering. Yeah, and it was sort of tough going, you know. Um, I've always tried to be a change agent, sort of tough trying to change the system. And I think I wrote out three resignation letters in the first six months I was back. Wow. I look back, at, you know, thank goodness I didn't send any of them. Because I was really trying to introduce different approaches to paediatrics and arguing that a hospital couldn't just be a tertiary place waiting for sick children to come and then treat them and then send them back to the community. So there were no community activities. There were no clinics in developmental behavioural paediatrics, the new morbidity. So bit by bit, we sort of got going. We set up a school problems clinic and then we set up a soiling clinic and then it sort of went from there. We got a few research grants. The most important thing, I think, was that after a year or so, the government agreed to fund three training programs. So we started to train train people and that spawned a larger training program. So I stepped down as head of my centre that I established all those years ago with me and half a secretary. It's now got about 150 full-time staff. Still there today. Still there today. And so some of the people we trained have gone on to be leaders in other states and... uh, so they were very early days and I sort of feel humbled to have played a part in that. It's incredible. It's incre- like it's just amazing. So how long did you stay there at the centre for? From 1980 till 18 months ago. Wow. Did the sums. Long time. But it, it wasn't the centre when I started. It was the Department of Ambulatory Paediatrics. Okay. Ambulatory Paediatrics was a big movement in the States and it was arguing that patients who walked, <laughs> that is outpatients, deserved as much focus of attention and resources as patient in beds and so that was sort of growing 
And I had endless confusion with people saying, I'm in charge of ambulances and et cetera, et cetera. But it was very important because the Children's Hospital is a wonderful institution. It's well known internationally. It's uh, famous for all sorts of things. But it was pretty closed in those days. So there was very little community liaison. There was no community outreach. And I remember in the early days we ran the emergency room and I used to take residents working in emergency to some disadvantaged schools to talk to the principals and teachers and so on. So they were the very early kernels of a much more active preventive approach. Some of the models we started all those years ago are still in existence today. So it was a major sort of reorientation of what paediatric practice is, reaching out into the community, working more closely with families, focusing on prevention, asking what went wrong in the community that, that, that this child needed to come to hospital. And the corollary of that is how can we be working with children and families to stop children ending up in tertiary services? And so many conditions that paediatricians see and psychologists see and psychiatrists see are preventable. Pick these kids up early, support them, scaffold them in appropriate ways, scaffold the families. You intervene early, it's cheaper, it's more efficient, you save a lot of angst. Better outcomes. Probably save a lot of prison time, yeah. et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So there were sort of exciting times. And gradually the, the centre, the department and the centre grew. We started to attract more and more smart people. And the training program grew as well. So I'm not in charge of the training program. I haven't been for quite a long time. But this year we have about eight or ten trainees and we have 40 applications. So, it's amazing. So the young doctors, the young paediatricians, they really want to make a difference. They don't want to go into practice and make lots of money necessarily. But they don't want to work in the wards, looking after sick children all the time. They really want to work with disadvantaged and vulnerable families. So that's been exciting, mentoring these young people as they grow older. Frank, you would have seen some big advancements and progress changes over your time in the paediatric space. What is something that you're most proud of or you think that um, has been most progressive as far as where we are today versus where we were back then? Oh, that's a big call. <laughs> and I can only give you a narrow answer because I, my specialty is fairly narrow. Yeah. I mean, there's all in the big picture thing, you look at immunisation, you look at gene therapy, you look at the rotavirus and the hospital, the Children's Hospital in Melbourne has been at the forefront of a lot of those changes. So I can't speak in an informed yeah. way for those. In my area, in developmental and behavioural paediatrics, I think the big difference is that people understand there is a science to this. One of my ex-trainees said to me once when he was training with me, and I turned it into a quote that I used to use on a slide, and it goes something like, everybody knows you need special expertise to look after sick children in hospital, but they think that looking after children with developmental and behavioural problems is just common sense. And, and that was, that's what it was like, you know. Is that right? The older paediatricians, you know, I've been looking after these kids for 30 years. And uh, so I think the big change is people now appreciating that there is a science to it. There's a, a very robust research community, both here and overseas, and that you do need skills. You can't see a children walking with complex behavioural problems and family issues and intuitively know what to do. Yeah. Sometimes you'll get it right, but lots and lots of times you'll get it wrong. I think the other thing, the other big change I've noticed is paediatricians working with other professionals. Yeah. So when I trained, you learned to speak the same language as biochemists and anatomists and uh, radiologists. Now we have to learn the language of social workers and psychologists and community workers. And that's been the change. I think the recognition that paediatrics can't do it by ourselves 
and the paediatric practices that are sprung up in the community, at least around Victoria that I know, where the younger graduates have gone into practice, inevitably have a speech therapist as part of the, part of the centre, inevitably have a psychologist there, because that's what paediatric morbidity is these days. It's, uh, I mean, yeah, what an incredible thing that would be to see as you went along the journey and to see that integration of services coming together to create better outcomes for people. By no means are we there yet, I'm aware of that, but do you want to tell us about some of the challenges as far as children's mental health? What are so? I mean, it's a complex thing. Tell us about some of the challenges that we're facing. Well, let me start with the clinical practice of pediatrics yeah. and, the, and the concerns we face there. That generally, pediatric practice clinically hasn't changed, even though there's better trained pediatricians and we sort of know what we're doing. We sit in the room by ourselves waiting for children to come to us and that public system, there's often 12-month waiting lists because there's a major equity and access Shortage. issue. I'll come back yeah. and talk about that in a moment. So they wait 12 months to come to the children, see me. I do the best I can to do an assessment, then realise, whoops, they need to see a speech pathologist. So I go back to my office and spend half an hour finding out where can I send this child for a public speech pathology assessment. Or they need cognitive testing or they need a good clinical psychologist. So Medicare doesn't acknowledge that at all. Medicare, the funding mechanism both for hospitals but also for individual practice, facilitates individual consultation when so many of these kids should be going to a one-stop shop. Ideally, I should be working with a team, uh, with a psychologist on that side, a social worker yeah. over there, a speech, et cetera, et cetera. So the parents just come to the one place. And in our school function program, which was the very first clinic we set up, that was a multidisciplinary clinic with a paediatrician, a psychologist, and an educator. So that was an interesting model, actually. In the same yeah. appointment or so just in the, out of the same Same time? appointment. That makes sense. It was it? A, yeah, it's, it's logical. Very logical. So we introduced some interesting things. Uh, it's worth just me spending a few minutes talking about yeah. that. So first of all, referrals came from the school. They didn't need to go and see a GP or anything, anybody first. Yes. They came to, to the hospital. We developed parent and teacher questionnaires that we sent out beforehand. So by the time the children arrived, we already had a fair bit of background information. Birth history, family history, when did symptoms start, previous assessments, all of those sorts of things. Um, and a behavioural assessment. We used the CBCL or the TRF, Arkenbach's uh, questionnaire. So by the time we actually said hello to the family, we had a behavioural profile from the parents and the teachers, the history. So we could really engage and work on the relationship both with the child and the parents. That was the first thing. Secondly, we, we did it through a one-way screen. So we sort of watched each other, multiple observers of the one child. So if I miss something, somebody else would pick it up. Thirdly, the teachers, this didn't happen straight away, but after about a year or two, we wouldn't see a child unless someone from the school came as well because we're really interested in building capacity in the school as well. So the teacher sat behind the screen and watched and commented. And then at the case conference, so we saw two children in the morning. At the case conference, the pediatrician presented the case, then the psychologist and then the educator. And we invited the teacher or somebody else from the school, and often there were two or three people in the school turned up. We invited them, what did you think? And it was so interesting, these power structures. It's changed now, thank goodness. But in those days, Many of the teachers, not all, were quite intimidated by the idea of coming to a hospital yeah. and being invited to comment when there was a paediatrician there, a psychologist there, and an educator. You know. Yeah, that'd be daunting. So, so that was interesting. So then we gave feedback to the parents on that same day. They left with 
having had a conversation with one of us about here's what we think was going on. Then we asked the parents permission to send the report to the school. It's their report, it's about their child. And we sent exactly the same report that we sent to the school to the parents. So they had access to exactly the same information that the school had, which was empowering of them as well. And we did an evaluation of the clinic five or so years after it got going. And it was really positive. You know, it really led to changes in school practice. So there were some of the things we introduced, having teachers involved, building capacity, involving parents, sharing information, etc., etc. The other thing was I wanted to make that model as simple as possible to make it sustainable. We didn't want super specialists there. We didn't, make the, we didn't want to make it complex. We were trying to give a message to schools. Look, every school can set up a program like this. There's a local paediatrician. You can maybe bring in a psychologist. You can set up versions of this multidisciplinary assessment. So that was a very early model, but generally we see children one at a time behind a closed door so that the funding, block funding to hospitals and Medicare funding is just not appreciated that paediatrics is different than it was 50 years ago. Many of these kids really do need a multidisciplinary assessment, not serially over 12 months, but in one go. It's almost like we've regressed in some instances there. I don't think we've regressed. We just have a demonstration model and that's still going. Yeah, um, right. But I think that idea has been taken up. I think there are little multidisciplinary assessment teams all over the country. But uh, they okay. all struggle for funding. It's not yeah. mainstream, and yet it should be mainstream non-hospital funding. Yeah, because I imagine it wouldn't be cheap to get all those people exactly. in the room there at once. But infinitely cheaper to assess and address then yeah. than wait five years down the line when that kid's in social justice. Yes, or misdiagnosed at the start. Correct. Yeah. That's, what, what an interesting I – mean, it, I mean, it's great to see that it's still happening – on one hand but also i mean it'd be so hard in a window when you have a child to come in to sit there and and try and diagnose with the notes you have with what they're doing in front of you for that for that period short period of time i'd imagine very hard especially when they waited 12 months to get into you and then all of a sudden a speech or whatever they have to go to after that i mean there's i mean you don't get into them overnight either Exactly. So, like, so these kids have a serial exam, examination over 12, 18 months. That's yeah. a long time for parents to wait. I was lucky and my colleagues are lucky because we're, we're salaried, you know, we work in a hospital. But if you're trying to run a private practice, it's very, very hard. And so anecdotally, we know that lots of paediatricians will limit the number of these children they see because they lose money on it and they've got to run a business, they've got to earn a living as well. Yeah. And some paediatricians won't see them because they're too complex. There's one other good, good anecdote of uh, this wasn't me, it was a school principal. And uh, I've got to tell you, some of the school principals I've met over the years are just extraordinary human beings, just heroes. And it made me realise early on how important leadership is at making a difference at a local level. We did an outreach to, I shouldn't mention the school, uh, but it was close to the children's hospital in a disadvantaged, socioeconomically depressed area. And I'd take a couple of the residents from the hospital there and the principal, so in the old days, the school nurse would come on one day and the, somebody from the old psych and guidance or psychologist would come on a different day, etc. There's no paediatrician. So the principal got us all to come on a Friday morning. In the old model, children would be referred to the psychologist only if there was a problem, etc. Et so on a Friday morning, we'd gather in his office at 8.30 and have a cup of tea. And he'd ask each teacher in rotation as a schedule, 
like two teachers a morning, hey, Sam, come down and have a cup of tea with us. And they'd come down, pour a cup of tea. Tell us the three or four kids in your class you are most worried about. It was as informal as that. And the teacher would say, I'm worried about Johnny. And the school nurse would say, I know that family. I looked after this. I remember the sister that uh, I'll pay a visit to the mum or another kid, somebody. I think they've, got a, they've been to the children's. Okay, I'll check the children's. Psychologists. Seen at church, sports. But it was in, all the professionals would come together at the same time. And the yeah. teachers felt so empowered because all the kids in the classroom that were so challenging to them, the principal was interested in. And yeah. we would try and support, put scaffolding around that teacher. That, that was an interesting model as well. So leadership is important. I still remember that teacher's name. Isn't that incredible? Remember, one of the reasons I remember, he was really quite charismatic, but on weekends he worked at the races as a bookman's baggie. <laughs> he held the bag for the bookie. So he was, he was really quite a character. So if we go back to the, the fragmented service model that we have, what are some of the challenges and what do you think we need to do about addressing those? Well... You know, I talked about, first of all, it's a very, very fragmented. Disjointed. Very disjointed. And in this morning's talk, I mentioned 147 different types of programs and services. So if you map them all, there are so many and yet we don't know where to go. So it's very, very difficult to navigate, even for professionals. Uh, and we heard time and time again from maternal and child health nurses and from GPs and from schools, they don't know where to send these kids. So there are no clear criteria and services spring up and don't spring up. And there are often narrow eligibility requirements. Oh, you've got a gambling problem. We don't deal with gambling. We only deal with alcohol and drugs. So you've got to fit these narrow diagnostic criteria to get services. So we see again and again and again major problems with access and with equity. So if you can afford it, you can go and see a paediatrician or a psychologist privately. You can get in, still waiting lists, but you can get in much more quickly and you get pretty reasonably good services. Yeah, there are good people working in these systems. This is not about disparaging the people. No. But in the public system, it's very, very disjointed. And as I said, there are many criteria for getting services. You often need a diagnosis. You need often a threshold. You need a certain level of severity before people will see you. And it's very, uh, it's very challenging. It's very, very hard. And part of the problem is there are so many professionals working in that. We're not just talking about psychologists and psychiatrists. We're talking about social workers, pediatricians. There's a whole lot of people, particularly in that secondary system, who can assess and manage many of these children. And it varies from state to state, from area to area, from community to community. So I think we desperately need a couple of things. One is some way of mapping all of these services so that a school or a GP knows exactly who to refer which child to. And then we need to make sure that feedback loop is closed. So if I send a child to you for assessment and management, uh, you'll respond, you'll send me a letter, et cetera. But secondly, we really need to move away from these single discipline silos. We need to start to fund, to facilitate formation and funding of one-stop shops, of multidisciplinary centres. And in the strategy, we call them low-threshold centres. So you, don't need, you shouldn't need a diagnosis to get in there. It should be enough, I'm worried about this child. And then the way we envisage it is that there's an initial triage process. There'd be an experienced clinician. doesn't matter what their background is. It can be nursing, it can be social yep. work, it can be mental health who would see this family right, or take this referral right at the beginning with as little delay as possible, at least the initial consultation. It doesn't mean this is going to be the definitive assessment. 
And then there'd be a whole range of responses from, look, your child has sleep problems. These are really common. Here's some information that might help you. There's very good information on the Raising Children Network. Why don't you try those or go and see your GP or the, et cetera. Try those. If they don't work, come back in a month or so. All the way through to, wow, this child and family has really serious issues. They need to go right through to quaternary services. This child needs a psychiatrist. Family is a social worker, they need to be referred to child protection services, to family violence, and everything in between. And it doesn't have to be physical. We're not suggesting the government go and buy 2,000 buildings around the country and set all of this up. They can be virtual. So somehow we have to find the way of setting up these multidisciplinary centres so there are no wrong doors everywhere. And low threshold, if you've got an issue... You've come to the right place. I may not be able to help you, but I'll make sure that you'll get referred seamlessly to a person or a group of professionals that can help sort out your problem. That makes sense. I mean, because we're missing a bit of that at the moment, aren't we? We're missing that opportunity. A bit of that. A fair bit of that to really identify that at an earlier point in the, in the, in the timeline. Correct. Yeah, because in those earliest stages when parents are sometimes reluctant to get support and we... This morning I talked about the terminology. You know, they've got yeah. to admit to themselves, my child has, may have a quote-unquote mental health problem. That's when we can often intervene the best in those very, very early stages. That's when we can do the most good. And yet the service system is predicated on waiting till children get to a certain level of, sev- level of severity and then we treat them rather than scaffold them. The amount of investment in a child mental health at the moment is probably in record numbers I, th- I think we would if you look historically i guess it would say mm-hmm. how do you think we're going as far as investing those uh, dollars in the right areas yeah. we're investing them traditionally and that is we're announcing programs like funding 100 new psychologists or 50 social workers or intervention program for a school and that's okay but we need to step back and look at the whole system what does that patchwork of services look like what needs to be done? I mean, what we'd like to see in the strategy is just stop funding for five minutes and step back. Look at the whole picture of child mental health and then how do we develop, a, say, a 10-year funding plan that promotes the things we know are critical, like parent education, parent literacy, like changing the language, like improving access, like mapping the services, like encouraging these one-stop-shop integrated hubs. They're the things we need to be funding. It just can't be willy-nilly. Somebody gets to the minister or somebody has an idea. It's got to be a much more thoughtful, much more measured approach. So another thing is we shouldn't just look at our success in addressing children's mental health and the gaps in dollar amounts. Again, in the strategy, we were at pains to say this is not about more money. Yes, we need more resources for child mental health, but it really is a branch and root reform of the system. It's looking at all the things we need to do, some of which don't take money, some of which take cultural change, which is often very difficult. Different is often harder to argue for than more. But if the only measure of our success of the strategy is lots more money for child mental health, that's not necessarily the outcome that we're looking for. You mentioned the strategy, and in fact, let's talk about the National Children's Mental Health Wellbeing Strategy. You're the co-chair of that. Tell us about the strategy and how you think it's progressing. Well, we were very pleased. I mean, we were quite daunted when we took it on. I got a phone call from the minister's office in one of my clinics at the hospital. 
uh, invited me to be co-chair with Christelle, who's a psychiatrist from Brisbane. Yeah. And we're at opposite ends of the spectrum almost. She's a fabulous researcher doing research on um, fairly narrow band, working in a hospital setting, I'm in a community setting. It was like uh, chalk and cheese, but it was, it was an inspired choice, at least from my point of view. We reached consensus well, we got on very well, we respected each other. We developed a lovely working relationship, we got to like each other. Um, but importantly, bringing it into the Mental Health Commission or under the umbrella of the Mental Health Commission was critical because there's some very smart people there. They understood a lot of the governance issues and how you write these reports, etc. But it was sort of daunting just taking on the task and yet how could you turn down an opportunity like that to try and make a difference? So the Mental Health Commission helped us organise some of the governance, some of the processes, organised a whole lot of the consultations for us, helped, helped us set up the committees, listened to Christelle and I as we made suggestions for members of the expert committees, and it came together really very, very well. And then COVID struck. And so that changed some of the ways we worked because you know, we had the committees that I, uh, the expert committees and the working groups that I mentioned this morning, but... We also had in mind to do a sort of roadshow visiting every capital city in the country where the Mental Health Commission had organised for all of the branches of government involved in child mental health would come together for half-day workshops. So we would have learnt a hell of a lot from those meetings. And, and it was important also because the states would have... The idea was for the states to own the report and own the process. So we had to cut that short and we had several telehealth meetings which were okay but nothing like... No. But I can't praise our staff. I mentioned two of them this morning by name, Alex Haynes and Sarah McNeil. They were just fabulous and they just helped pull it together. And then we had some good critical input from the members of the Mental Health Commission as well. So all in all, we were very pleased. I'm sure I speak for Christelle as well. We were just delighted with the way the draft report came together. Yeah. I'm sure there were errors. We put it out for public consultation, as you know. I think we got close to 200 formal submissions I know I got a lot of informal feedback and I know Christelle did as well and I presume the Mental Health Commission did as well. So at the present time, they're, not at present, over the last six weeks, they've been collating all the responses, organising them because we want to honour everybody's response and do justice to their comments. And we've got our first follow-up meeting now next week, scheduled for next week, and uh, we'll start to write it, put together the final report, which, which will then go to government in the next few months. That's exciting. It's an exciting moment, yeah. Obviously, we can't change the fact that COVID came along, but do you find that with what you were able to do as far as getting the stakeholders buy-in and getting the input that you needed, do you feel like it's there? Do you feel like you've got the responses? Um, we're never satisfied with some of that stuff. You can't yeah. consult enough. You can't co-design enough. But as you say, it is what it is, and we did the best we can. I think we got a very good – we certainly did a lot of good stakeholder consultation with the various um, – parent groups, youth groups, vulnerable populations, etc. So we're reasonably content that we tried hard to do it and I think we did a reasonable attempt. Has there been anything that surprised you so far as far as the strengths and weaknesses of the current system and some feedback you've gotten from that? Nothing that really shocked us. Okay. I mean, we got a lot of terrific detail. I mean, we had fabulous co collaboration from the colleges and the societies, and the College of Psychiatry, the Australian Psychological Society. We went to all those professional groups and got some terrific ideas and great support for what we were doing. So that was good. And just some terrific recommendations that I hope we've honoured and reflected in the recommendations that we've made. The other challenging thing that I mentioned this morning is measurement, you know, indicators. Again, what we don't want is for people to applaud us. Oh, what a great report goes up on the shelf. And in 
five years' time, someone will pull it down. And we've, we've seen this before. There was a report in 2000 and we go through – I've been through some of that and some of the recommendations are still so germane today. So we really want the government to commit to a process of how are we doing, measuring how we're doing. And this is going to be difficult for all of us, but particularly for governments, being able to accept some feedback. And yeah. it's not criticism. It's everybody engaged in the process of trying to make the world a better place for children. So it's problematic with federal-state relationships as well. We hope that we can bring them together and stop federal government overriding or vice versa services on the ground. And we really want the strategy to help build bridges between the different professional groups, try and come up with a common language, with common referral patterns, common guidelines and so on. That all makes sense and hopefully that goes well. I guess the biggest fear is that what you said before is that it all goes on a shelf yeah, and be, sits there. And Yeah, I think there's a momentum to child mental health. Yeah, no, I agree. I've been asked to give a talk in a few weeks' time and the title is The Elephant Has Finally Left the Room, yeah. you know, an increased focus. And it's what I said this morning. I think there's a real realisation now that there's an issue in children's mental health that it's not the same as adolescent mental health or adult mental health and it deserves its own policy, its own investment. So the timing is good and I think the Productivity Commission's report and the Victorian Royal Commission's report has also just bolstered that momentum. That the time is now and if, we're not, if we can't make a difference in the next five or ten years in child mental health, we're never going to. And as much as it shouldn't be about it, I mean the payoff that this will to, – to get it right and to implement a lot of these things in the preventative stage – I mean, long term, it surely will pay off. For sure. And Productivity Commission put some figures around that as yeah. well. And not just in economic terms, but just the decrease in stress and distress to children and families and teachers and everybody else. So, yeah, we're excited about it and we really hope that it'll make a difference. Can you share some of the indicators of, of measures of success for the strategy? And not at the top of my head. <laughs> There's indicators for each of yeah. the uh, objectives that we've got. Was it hard to come up with them? Yeah, lots. Yeah. Very, very hard. I said in my talk this morning, if you're looking for indicators of a success of a drug for high blood pressure, it's easy. You just measure blood pressure or liver function tests or whatever it happens to be. It's black and white. It's sort of levels. You reduce blood pressure from X to Y, therefore the drug works. In the whole psychosocial mental health field, it's, it's so much harder because there's a million variables that you have to look at. Setting up the advisory group, the steering committees, the working groups, I mean, they would have taken a fair bit of time and effort in doing that in a relatively short amount of time. Mm -hmm. I mean, we must be pretty proud looking back on, on what's been accomplished. Very much. Humbled and yeah. proud. And again, I just praise the Mental Health Commission. The way they did this was just fantastic and uh, made it much easier for, Christ for Christelle and I. A lot of the backroom work is what they did, uh, and we just chaired, chaired meetings, which was so much easier. Tell us about how critical it is to have that family and community involvement as a key focus area for this. Yeah, I think the co-design is really important. There's a, a quote that I use in some of my talks that I made into a slide by, I'm blocking on his name, he's a Chilean Marxist philosopher and writer. I'm blocking on his name right now. Uh, the quote's in Spanish, and I've had it translated. The only thing you create from the top down are holes. Everything else has got to be bottom up. And it's a good quote. And so we've had a history, not just in our country but everywhere, of experts know what's best, governments know what's best, and then we expect you to pick it up. And it's often been a one-size-fit-all, a yellow one, a red one, a green one, and we expect it 
to be okay for central Australia as for the suburbs of Sydney. And in retrospect, that's just so foolish. And our Indigenous populations have been saying forever, forever and forever, yeah. self-determination, give us the resources, we'll know what to do with them. And there's been that lack of trust by government. Oh, we can't trust you. And we've seen failure again and again and again and an extraordinary waste of money. So every community is different in terms of its demographics, its aspirations and service system, etc. So we've got to design different systems. The principles can be the same, but the nuances have to be different for every community and really every family, I suppose, at the same time. The closer you are to a problem, the more likely it is that you'll know what to do about it. And the converse is true. So with respect to the government in Canberra, if they're 2,000 miles away from a particular town that has an issue, they're not going to know what to do. They need to empower that town. And the other issue about that, about the co-design, is that town or the community or the area, they come to own the program. They're yeah. proud of the program. And they'll tweak it and fine-tune it to make sure that it works. Decentralisation of it, I mean, it just seems... So logical. Well, it, it does seem logical. And I know the Indigenous communities have been doing it for some time now. Have you ever seen it in play during your career? Have we gone away from it and now we want to come back to it? No, I think we're going towards it now. Okay. I, th I think we see really good examples of collaborative thinking in every single state. Yeah. You know, in our centre, we've done quite a bit of work on something called platforms, which is really engaging a community, looking at data, engaging a community. In fact, it's interesting just to describe. So we work with a community. Uh, we're invited in to work with them and we try and assemble the leaders of that community. And leadership isn't necessarily traditional leadership. And then we work with them to understand the community. What are the sources of data? What are the services? What are the strengths? What are the programs? And a lot of those data are administrative data that usually aren't looked at. And we keep on drilling down, drilling down, drilling down, including AEDC data, until they get a pretty good feel for what's going on in the community. And then we say, what do you think's missing? What would you like to see that's different? Here we need an extra speech pathologist and here we need... And then we work with them, but it's their plan. It's not our plan. And that's what we'd like to see. In England, there was a program called Sure Start around addressing poverty in uh, the early years. And they talked about tight, loose controls. That is, they were very tight on expectations, but loose on inputs. Once a community was identified as being a Sure Start community, they were given resources and they were held, they were accountable to what they said they would deliver. But the way the services were delivered was totally flexible. So in two adjoining communities, the inputs would be totally different because the issues are very different. Now, that wasn't sustained in the UK because they reverted back to traditional practice as funding ran out. But that still makes a lot of sense to us. Develop some principles, support the communities to do that, hold them accountable, but let them organise how best. Get their buy-in. Yep. Yeah. That makes sense. Tell us about what you would like to see from the education setting like what do you think the role is for them moving forward as well yeah we've got a team uh, once i step down from the center i build up a research team in a program called mental health and primary schools or mips so we do a lot of work on that and schools are ideal places because they're universal there's no stigma attached every child goes to school and here we have trained professional teachers work seeing their kids day in day out spend a lot of time with them spend a lot of time but sort of trained eyes and they see them in so many different contexts. They see them 
as they attempt to make social relationships. They see them when they're stressed, not being able to answer a maths problem, whatever it happens to be. So they're in the perfect position to identify and to intervene early. And what's really interesting in, in some of the research we did with schools, the vast majority of teachers are now identifying child mental health as a core part of their responsibility. And that's very exciting because I think that would have changed in the last decade. Mm. Previously, they would have said, oh, we can't do everything, you know, we have to teach. But they're now seeing that that's an important role for them because they can see the link between mental health issues and academic outcomes. But in the next breath, they say, I don't feel I have the expertise or the training and the school doesn't have the resources. So we have to go right back to universities, to the way they train teachers and make child development and child behaviour and mental health Key a com- core part of their training. So by the time they get to schools, they have confidence and they know what they're doing. For the existing teaching staff, we need to give them professional development opportunities so that those that want to can avail themselves of high-quality learning in behaviour. And then importantly, we have to start to change the school structure to make somebody at the school responsible for creating a wellness culture for that school. And it's pretty hard to do within existing resources. So our program calls for an additional person that we call the Mental Health and Wellbeing Coordinator to be appointed to the school. And he or she will have three roles. One is to work with a classroom teacher to give them the confidence to identify emerging issues and to deal with them. Pretty simple, straightforward stuff. Secondly, they will be a resource for within the school. They won't have a clinical role, but teachers will come to them and say, look, I've got a problem with Johnny, he's seven years old, it's it, and I'll get advice. Thirdly and importantly, they'll be able to bridge between education and community settings. So part of the program is they'll be mapping the various community agencies that children can be referred to. So we're well into, we did a feasibility study last year, feasible, very well accepted. This year it's being rolled out to 26 schools. Next year, if the budget bid's successful, it'll be 100 schools. Wow. And the ambition then is for every school in Victoria to have a wellbeing coordinator and be part of this program. And we're not asking teachers to be clinicians. I mean, it's just more Correct. of an identification. Correct. And I'm sure with the proper training and, and having that core curriculum as part of their degree, they'd be able to identify some of that quite quickly. Yeah, and know when you're out of your depth and you yeah. need advice. And even the coordinator doesn't have a clinical role. He or she may say, look, it's time to engage the parents or let's talk to student services or let's talk to our school psychologist or whatever it happens to be. And comes back to that referral mapping you spoke about earlier. exactly, exactly. Trying to make it simple. So the idea is to build capacity in schools. It's not a new program. Mm. It's giving schools the confidence in a sustainable way so they can make a difference over a long period of time. Mm. The implementation of the strategy after the draft how long are we looking at for the evaluation and the analytics or, or the evidence-based stuff coming out of that? We don't know. The consultation finished about six weeks ago. I think that the folk of the Mental Health Commission have almost finished. In fact, they probably have finished assessing it all. Okay. Uh, and as so I said, we've got a meeting next week. Yeah. So we all then discuss incorporating all of those suggestions into the final report and then we'll present it to the minister. And uh, hopefully they'll, they'll accept it and act on it. Yeah. Keep your fingers crossed. Yeah, well, we sure will, for sure. What are you obviously hoping for the buy-in to come in from the ministerial side of things and, and the implementation of all the recommendations to be mm-hmm. made and, and helped uh, implemented throughout the states as well? Yeah. Is that what excites you most about what's coming up in the future? Or tell us 
for yourself what's coming up? I mean, do you want to see that implemented? Do you want to see it carried out and fulfilled? Look, I, I think the strategy, as I said, we're proud of it. Christelle and I own it, a lot of effort into it. And, we, and lots and lots and lots of people own it. You know, yeah. the, the input, the, the support from individuals and, and the various groups and the colleges was just phenomenal. So they, they were just gave their time freely and made some fantastic suggestions and so on. So I think it's the most comprehensive set of recommendations that have been put together that reflect the views of the people working in the field. Mm. And hopefully we've done justice to that in the way we've structured it, the way we've, we've assembled it. So there's a, a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to take this seriously and to say we really want to move away from the traditional way we've looked at child mental health. This is like a new beginning. We want to empower children, empower families, change the language, all of those sorts of things that we said in the report. Governments grasp this in a non-partisan way and if we can really start to address the traditional gulf and rivalry between federal and state governments, if all of the governments can say, yep, this is really important, we're going to get behind this, what an exciting opportunity. So that, that really does excite me. So the implementation of the, of the framework, hopefully, or the recommendations, hopefully forthcoming. You're also looking forward to rolling out the MIPS program? Yeah, the MIPS, that's extraordinarily exciting and timing. Yeah. And we've got a great, great research group. And we did a workshop today at the uh, conference and we talked about partnerships, you know, great partnership between the Murdoch Children's Research Institute, the Centre for Community Child Health where I work, and the Melbourne Graduate School of Education. So there's health and education coming together in a research capacity. Fantastic partnership with the Victorian government who now own this. And so we've developed a great set of partnerships and strong support from other institutions like Beyond Blue, Emerging Minds, BU, Victorian Principals Association, like at the Australian Education Union. So there's a real, uh, and the timing is just, we were lucky with the timing. You know, yeah. Schools are a perfect platform. We've got a model. There's interest now from other sectors. So it's, yeah, it's a very exciting place to be. You mentioned at the, at the very beginning of our conversation, Frank, the importance of the environment around kids mm -hmm. in nurturing them and providing positive health and well-being outcomes for our kids. Mm -hmm. Everything we've spoken about and seems to be in that framework, it seems to be in the strategy, sorry, seems to be all around that mm -hmm. and trying to have that environment around kids to yep. support them. Is that, I mean, that's obviously the critical part in all this is providing that environment around kids. Yeah, I mean, the old nature-nurture debate, that nature is a nurture, is really finished. It's always nature and nurture. Some kids are born with genetic predisposition to having a particular issue. But we know that the environment is extraordinarily important. And in the last decade, 15 years, there's been a major research thrust into ACEs, adverse childhood events. And we know that the more adverse child events you're exposed to in those early years, the more likely it is you're going to be, end up on a trajectory with problems later on. Now, you can't do much to change nature. <laughs> the only way you can change nature is to make sure that during pregnancy, women look after themselves and look after their health, et cetera, et cetera. But where we can intervene is at the level of the environment. You know, we've known for a long, long time exactly those factors in the family, in the proximal and distal environments that impact positively or negatively on children's outcomes. And that's where we can intervene and that's where we need to mobilise to make a difference. Frank, where can people keep up to date with what's going on with this? Is there a way they can contact or, or keep up to date with what's happening? I think the Mental Health Commission website. Yep. Yeah, they've got a very good website and they'll continue to update it. 
they just Google Mental Health Commission. Yes. Federal one. That's the best way to keep up to date. What else? Is there anything else that you want to say in closing? Anything that I haven't spoken about or asked you about that you would like to mention? No, it's been enjoyable, Sam. It's, it's a journey. I think we're all on a journey together. And I think, I hate to say this publicly, but none of us quite know what we're doing. We're, we're on a steep, steep learning curve. And it's exciting. And I think I've just been overwhelmed and humbled by just how much time and effort people engaged in child mental health want to want to put into this by the goodwill they've shown towards us putting together the strategy. And that's been great. Well, Frank, you'd have to think if we elevate all of this, at the end of the day, if we want all want better outcomes for kids, it's a no-brainer. Yeah, you've got to get past the policy barriers though, don't you? Yeah. And as I said this morning, governments don't like complexity. Yeah. And there's no way you can simplify these things. We can take the various complex bits and like a jigsaw puzzle. And that's what I was saying before about funding, that if we step back and let's look at the individual components and make sure that each year as funding hopefully increases, it, it funds four or five or 10 or 30 more pieces of the jigsaw puzzle. So we know exactly where it's going to go, how it's going to fit, and that then informs the following year's funding. Frank Oberclade, I've, I've had a really enjoyable conversation and enjoyed the time together. I appreciate you spending the time with us and sharing not only your background, but also the important work that you're doing with the strategy and the, and the rollout as it's happening. So thanks very much for your time and we appreciate it. Thank you, Sam. It's been fun. Is there someone working in mental health who you'd like to be featured on the podcast? Are there more questions you want the answers to? Let us know what you want to hear. Get in touch with us by emailing any podcast suggestions to membership at anzmh.asn.au and be sure to stay up to date on our socials at ANZMHA on Facebook, Twitter and LinkedIn. Thank you very much for listening and we look forward to sharing our next conversation.